The, uh, the whole thing is, though, as we get into our, our, um, our message this morning, last week, unfortunately, we had some issues at the, at the soundboard and weren't able to record the message. So those of you who didn't, uh, didn't make it last week because of Thanksgiving weekend, I want to do a little bit of a review for you uh, to help catch you up to where we're at, as well as those who are listening online again today. Um, that, that way they kind of know where we're at as well because we got the recorder fixed this morning. But um, what we did is we started out in the book of Matthew. And there's, there's two different accounts of the, of the birth story in the four Gospels. One's found in Luke. That's generally the typical one that you're going to hear. If you were to sit down on Christmas morning, um, you sit down and you'll read through the book of Luke. Uh, the opening chapter and it talks about the angels coming and the shepherds and all the cool stuff that we sing songs about then on the other hand there's this one that comes in the book of matthew where we're going to be at um and he starts off with the genealogy now if you open up the book of matthew chapter one and you start reading there it's kind of one of those things where you probably would stop eventually uh pretty quick because the genealogy isn't exactly fun but there's two reasons why he goes through and does this genealogy and traces the lineage of Jesus. Number one is he needed to convince people that Jesus was really Jewish. And in order to convince somebody that Jesus was really Jewish, you had to be related to Abraham to be really be Jewish. So what he does in this lineage is, first of all, he tells them that Jesus is related to Abraham. On the other hand, the second thing, in order to be the Messiah, Jesus had to be related to King David. Because they all, all the Jewish people knew that King David a descendant from King David would be the Messiah. So these are the two reasons why he does it. Now in the process, as Matthew begins the Christmas story with the genealogy, we discovered that he doesn't stick to a normal script. Because the script for a genealogy generally only highlights the good things and leaves out the bad things. Unfortunately, or fortunately I guess, but unfortunately as people are reading this, they see that Matthew doesn't do that because he mentions a handful of women. Generally, that's not something you would include in the genealogy. These women, most of them weren't Jewish. Some of them didn't have great reputations. He even mentions a guy by the name of David, that King David. But instead of just mentioning the fact that he was a great king, he also mentions Bathsheba and where all the things came from with that. All these little negative things you wouldn't normally include into a genealogy, Matthew does. And what the whole idea was and why he would do it is because... And, and this is what we really talked about last week. The reason why he does it is because it's the story. It is the main reason that Jesus came. And he wanted people to know that Jesus came not only for sinners, but also from sinners. And as we look at that and we see that and we see that Matthew himself, we talked about him last week, Matthew himself took this very personally because he was... A sinner. As a matter of fact, he was beyond a sinner. He was a tax collector. And we talked about last week, there's a, there's a category for sinners, and then there's the next category on down on the totem pole, which is the category for tax collectors. And Matthew fell into this, and Matthew understood that there was a teaching that was going on at the time, and really had, had all these religions, and even today, still happens for whatever reason. All these religions came together, and they, they pulled this and that, and they, they took these things here, and it all became part of... Uh, instead of about God loving us, it's about what we could do for God. And the thing is, we get so sucked into that, even ourselves, even though we know that Jesus came and he died for us, we have this tendency to think that our self-righteousness, that our goodness is good enough for God. We have this platform that's going to get us closer to God because of what we do and how we do it. And Matthew understood that this was a teaching that was going on at the time. And as he looked through that teaching, 
He knew that he, being a tax collector, was about as far from God as he possibly could be. And he would never have a chance with it. So he fell into a separate category. The second side of the coin is, instead of being so good that I can do it on my own, he was so bad he could never get close enough to God. And that was a belief that maybe even some of us have in here as well. Because I would bet we all struggle with, how are we going to do this? How are we going to pray? How am I going to act? Because, okay, let me just ask you this. Any of you in here uh, sports fans? Okay, those of you who are sports fans, when you watch any major game on, on TV, uh, World Series, Super Bowl, there's always that tense moment in the game where they pan around to the person praying. They're just sitting there doing this, and they're just, oh, God. What's going through their mind? The same thing that's probably going through your mind as well. And you may hate to admit it and may not even want to admit it, but you're thinking, God, I promise I will stop doing this if you just let my team score. Am I telling the truth? Do you do that? Tell me honestly. You know you do it because we all do it. It could be for a sports team, all the way to the fact of if we get a kid who's sick, God, please just, just heal my child, and then I'll stop doing this. I will do this. God, look at all the things I've done. How can you do this to me now? How can you give me this? I promise I won't do this if this happens. And we start bargaining with God like we have any sort of say whatsoever. And that was where Matthew was at 2,000 years ago. And he was kind of up a creek because he had a really bad reputation. He had a bad life. He did bad things. And now, instead of being the one who's bargaining with God, he didn't have anything to bargain with. And so he felt like he could never come to God. And we, if we fall into one of those two categories if we start believing religion is that way. We start believing that, that our self-righteousness or our lack of self-righteousness is either going to get us closer to God or keep us from God. But that has never been the case. That has never been the case, and Matthew understood that the teaching of Jesus was different. He understood that the, math, that the teaching of Jesus was different than that thinking, that all religions, and the thing is, it could be Buddhist, it could be Islam, it could be Christianity, it could be Catholicism, it could be Mormonism. It, it doesn't matter. All those things come together. We have this mindset of it's about our self-righteousness or lack thereof, and Jesus never taught that. Jesus came because he wanted us to have life and have it to the full. Because the thinking that we have there comes from Satan who wants to destroy and kill and just steal from us and steal our joy. And those are the things that we have to be careful of. So as Matthew had read through this, he realized there was this completely different approach to God. The brand new worldview that Matthew had. It wasn't something that was new because it was beginning then. It was actually been around since the beginning of time. But it had been lost. It had been lost in the shuffle of religion instead of the relationship. And when Jesus came, he said, you know what? It's time for us to understand how this is supposed to work. And Matthew, I think with a small smile on his face, as he wrote out the genealogy, said, listen, this is where Jesus came from. He didn't come from perfect people. As a matter of fact, as we're going to see some people today, he came for some, some real crazy bloodlines some real weird things, as a matter of fact. So let's begin in Matthew chapter 1, and this is how Matthew begins the Christmas story. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. If you have your Bibles with you, it starts like this. A record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, 
the son of Abraham. Once again, it was important that everybody knew that he was connected to David and Abraham. Matthew 1, 2 says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. I want you to pause right there, because right here, I told you that the genealogy generally has good things tied into it. You want to have, focus on the good parts of your family, you want to leave out and omit the bad parts of your family. Here's the good parts right here, they're right here in your face. Here's the bad parts, we're going to hide those underneath the carpet. Well, he mentions Judah and his brothers. My guess is, right here, is that any Jewish reader would pause at this. He would take a second, and he would stop, and he would take a look and say, why would he mention Judah? My guess is, if you've been in church for a little while, you may know just a little bit about Judah. If I said, hey, turn to your neighbor next to you and talk about Judah, tell us a little bit about who he is and what he's done, most of you um, may have a small little snippet of something, a little blip on the radar, but not a whole, whole lot. But his brothers, or at least one of his brothers, is very famous. Does anybody know who his brother is? Joseph. Joseph has a very famous brother, Joseph. Why? Why did Matthew mention Judah and his brothers and not Joseph and his brothers? Why did God choose to use Judah instead of Joseph? Because see, Joseph, Joseph is very much a parallel to Jesus. Joseph is very much a parallel to Jesus. In case you didn't know, Joseph was the guy who had a coat of many colors. Okay? Maybe if you don't ever, have never been to church before, maybe you've seen, um, you know, some play on Broadway, uh, a reenactment of some musical theaters. I don't know, something like that. I don't get into that stuff, but I know there's one out there. Um, maybe you've seen that, and that's what you know about Joseph. But Joseph had this coat of many colors. He got this from his dad, and his, his dad gave him this, and beca- he became the, the favorite. And because he had become the favorite, his brothers didn't really like him. They were jealous of him. They didn't like what was going on. And... The thing is here that we see is that Joseph, through his whole story of his life, we see that he had incredible discipline. He was a man of extraordinary character. He was exactly what you would probably want to mention that the Savior of the world was going to come from. Especially because back in Genesis, the words that were actually used is that Joseph saved many. God used Joseph to save many. What a great parallel. To say that Joseph who saved many is now Jesus. Jesus came from this guy who saved many and Jesus came to save more. What a great parallel. But that's not where God goes. That's not where God goes. The crazy thing is, is as, he, as God looked down, I just don't understand why he said, you know, I'm going to choose Judah over Joseph. And the reason why I'm saying this is, let me give you a little background of where, where Judah was at. If you don't know the story, Joseph's brothers were all out in the fields doing some stuff. And he was told by his dad to go out and meet up with them. So he goes out and he's got his awesome coat on, the one that makes everybody jealous. And he goes out to meet up with his brothers. Let's pick it up here in verse 23 of Genesis chapter 37. If you have your Bibles, I'll give you a second to get over to it. But just as... Joseph, this favored son, is making his way out there. I can only imagine what the brothers are thinking as they see him coming. And Judah, Judah seems to be the leader. He's not the oldest, 
He's not the youngest, but he seems to be the influencer. He seems to be the one that gets everybody to do everything. So in Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 23, this is what it says. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe that he was wearing. And they took him and they threw him into a cistern. Now the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. Now a cistern, if you didn't know, was essentially a well. Let's take a look here now at the next verse. Verse 25, it says, As they sat down to eat their meal. As they sat down to eat their meal. I want you to just think about it just for a second. They've just taken their younger brother, who they really don't like very much, and they threw him into an empty well. A well that he can't get out of. Then they make a picnic. Is there something wrong with the way that all works? I mean, you could probably hear Joseph yelling out of the well. There's probably a nice echo. And they're like, oh, what was that? Oh, no, it's just Joseph. Don't worry about it. Can you pass the mustard? You know, it, who knows what exactly was going on in there. But they all sat down to eat the meal. And, and then we see here, it says, they looked up, in verse 25, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. So here comes these traders from Gilead. They're loaded up with all this stuff. And Judah, Judah gets an idea. Judah gets an idea because they're trying to figure out how to kill Joseph. And then they, he started thinking, you know what? If we kill him, we're not going to get anything out of this. As a matter of fact, Genesis verse 26 here in, in chapter 37 says, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? He's sitting there thinking. You know, he's chewing on his sandwich or whatever it is he's eating. And he's thinking, what can we get out of this? How can we benefit from the death of our brother? We can't. But you know what we can do? We can sell him to these guys and we can get some profits out of the deal. Then we can make it look like he's dead so dad doesn't think that we sold him off and everything would be good. So what he does is he, he goes in and he, being the influencer, goes into verse 27 and says, Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. I mean, there's a little bit of mercy in him, right? After all, he is our brother. That's what he says. We're just going to sell him into slavery. After all, he is our brother. We don't really want to kill him. We don't care what the Egyptians do to him when he gets stuck into slavery. But after all, he's our brother. He's our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. Now, the funny thing is, as he's thinking about how not to kill his brother, he's also thinking about how to profit from his brother's pain. Is that the kind of line that you would, if you were God, you would choose to send your son through? Or would you choose to be the story of Joseph? Because if you don't know anything about the story of Joseph, he goes off to Egypt. He gets sold into slavery. He has a lot of different issues come up, things thrown in his face. And things happen and things happen and things happen where he ends up to be in the prime minister of Egypt because of the way he is. And, and it's not like a quick story. You know, sometimes we read the Bible, we think, oh, that happened, that happened, that happened. It took years and years and years for this to happen. Over 20, as a matter of fact. And we look at it and we think about it and we really let it soak in. That's a long time to just take all sorts of abuse. But God used him in a mighty way. Why didn't God use him to bring Jesus through that lineage? Instead, he uses Judah. He uses Judah. And Judah, they do the unthinkable. Okay? He decides what they're going to do is they're going to tear up this robe and they're going to dip it in animal blood. They're going to go back to mom and dad and they're going to break their hearts. Because he's going to say, hey, you know what? Joseph was obviously on his way out to find us. Um, he didn't. We are coming back. We saw the robe. It was all torn up. Couldn't find his body. Something ate him. Um, 
and this is all we got left. Can you imagine that feeling of being a parent and knowing that happened? Especially, and I know we don't play favorites, we just like some more than others. Um, there's there's a, that thinking that, that Joseph is gone. And all the brothers know it, and all the brothers vowed to keep it a secret, and they all, they all got something out of the deal. You know, they all sat around, probably divvied up whatever they got money-wise. But eventually that money ran out, or those spices or that myrrh, whatever it might be, ran out. But the memory still remained. They watched their mother and father just with broken hearts and mourn and wail, and that was their own doing. They didn't tell anybody that, that Joseph was still alive. They didn't do it. They, they were going to take that secret to their grave. You have anything like that sometimes in our lives? We just don't want to share, that we don't want anybody to know about, or we're just going to take that secret to the grave, and sometimes it just eats away at the inside of you, and it mm, just really, really tears us up. Well, that's where Judah was, and, you know, Joseph's story goes on throughout the book of Genesis. As a matter of fact, uh, just a side note, Joseph's story is the longest story about any individual in the Old Testament. And it goes on and tells us all the things that go on with him. But there's a little blip in between the rest of Joseph's story that starts in, verse, in chapter 39 and the first 37 when he gets thrown, or chapter 37 when he gets thrown into the cistern. It's thir- uh, chapter 38, and it tells us about Judah. One chapter about Judah. And Judah, Judah here has, a, has some issues. He has a bunch of kids. He gets married, grows up, has a bunch of kids. And in the, in the process of having a bunch of kids, um, he has three boys first. His oldest son gets married to a woman by the name of Tamar. Now, if you read the genealogy there in Matthew, the name Tamar is mentioned, but not Judah's son. And the reason why Judah's son's not mentioned, it doesn't really go into it, but Judah's son, it says in the Bible, that did evil in the eyes of the Lord and died. I'm not sure exactly what that is, but it sounds pretty brutal. So, what happens in, in the custom of the uh, in the custom of of the Old Testament is that if you had a son who married a woman and your son died, it was your responsibility to take care of her. So he was going to wait until the third son was old enough because the second son uh, was old enough and he was married and did some evil in the eyes of the Lord as well. You can read about that in chapter thirty-eight. It's nothing we want to talk about really here at church, but he did some evil in the eyes of the Lord and he died as well. So. Judah had a responsibility. His responsibility was to take care of Tamar. And what he was going to do is he decided, well, I have a third son. He's not quite old enough to get married. But when he is old enough, I'm going to let him marry Tamar. And that way, everything will be taken care of. Kind of an interesting story how it all works, all the interesting dynamics of it all. But as we've seen, Judah really kind of thinks about himself a lot. We got that pretty cloud and clear when it was, he was jealous of his brother, so he sold him off into slavery, kept the stuff, and had everybody else fall in with the plan kind of thinking about itself a lot in that area. As we look at that, and as, as we let that process, we see also now that he is in charge of somebody else. But if you read chapter 38 of Genesis, you'll see that he kind of negates that responsibility. He says he's going to do it, but he doesn't. And as we get into it, and time goes on, and years go by, there is uh, a, a longing inside of Tamar to, to have this thing happen, because she can't take care of herself. It's a woman in a non-woman culture. And so she decides she's going to take matters into her own hands. 
she decides she's going to take matters into her hands and she's going to go dress up and she's going to dress up like a prostitute and sit at the temple gates because she knew that Judah, who's a man of influence, was going to be walking through those gates. He, he was part of the, the people that go in and out of those gates. He sits at the gates, makes judgments. That was kind of his thing. And she decided she was going to sit at that gate and she was going to strike up a conversation with Judah. And we don't know how many days passed as, as she was waiting there at the gates for him, but she had a veil on so she wouldn't be recognized. Now, on top of this, we have to remember, this isn't like a city like Albuquerque or, or a big city like Phoenix or something like that that they lived in. The town's probably pretty small, and he's done his best to avoid her, but I'm sure they had to have run into each other a time or two. But it's been so long since he's seen her, he doesn't recognize her there at the gate as they're sitting and talking. Even though this is his responsibility to take care of his daughter-in-law, he hasn't done it. We see this loud and clear. So he, she's sitting there, and um, they strike up a conversation, and he decides to hire her, not realizing who she is. He decides to hire her as a, as a prostitute. And um, the payment they decide on, as they sat and discussed, was a goat. Um, not sure if that's the going rate uh, uh, those days, but 3,000 years ago, apparently it was. So they decide on a goat, and that would be the payment. So they go off, and, and they, uh, they find some place to spend some time together. And uh, once again, I told you the Bible's not all G-rated. I'm just doing my best to do it here this morning. Um, they, uh, they, they spend some time together. Apparently, it was a dark enough place where he didn't recognize her. And um, they, they finish up all the things they needed to do. And uh, it's time for them to go. And she says, well, I need my goat. And he says, I don't have a goat. I'll have to go home and get one. And she says, okay, that's fine. But what I want you to do is I want you to give me two things so to make sure that you hold your promise. He said, um, the first thing is, is there's this, this seal. And it's a ring that they would wear around their neck. And it would be kind of like their signature, something they would, they would stamp their, their signature on. And also, a rod. And this rod was a symbol of strength. And it was something, kind of a big deal to have. So he said, that's fine. You can have these two things. I'm going to go. I'm going to have my servant get a goat and, uh, and bring it back. And it will be all set. So the servant goes back. And in the process, the servant, uh, he, or he goes to the servant and says, hey, you need to go find a temple prostitute at the gate, and uh, you need to take her goat. Don't want to tell you why. Don't want to get into any details. You just need to take this lady a goat, okay? And that's the way it's going to work. So the servant goes, and he finds a goat. He goes to the, to the temple, and he starts walking around. He can't find her. He can't find her anywhere. He starts asking people. And goes, no, there's, there's nobody like that. Nobody, nobody sits at the gate. We don't have a temple prostitute. You know, none of that stuff, so I'm not sure, exactly sure what's going on. And uh, so he goes back, to the servant goes back to Judah, says, Judah, I still got the goat because I can't find this lady. And being the fact that it's a little bit of an embarrassing situation, it's not like they're going to go say, hey, you know, I, I, had to, I have some services I have to pay for uh, with a goat. Um, not something you just want to announce to people on a, on a regular basis. He decides, you know, instead of an, dealing with that embarrassing moment, well, he can't find her, so he's just going to kind of let her go. Just let it go. Out of sight, out of mind, it'll be done. Shouldn't be any problem at all, right? Well, there is a little bit of a problem. There is a little bit of a problem because a few months later, about three months later, uh, he has somebody come up to him and say, hey, I'm not sure if you remember, you have a daughter-in-law by the name of Tamar. She, as the scripture says, had played the harlot. She is pregnant, and she has disgraced your family. And he gets all, just like most of us who are hiding a secret in some way, well, I'm so self-righteous. I need to go and I need to talk to this, this girl. And uh, by the way, the punishment is she need to be burned alive. Yeah, the guy who sold his brother into slavery, broke his mom and dad's heart, 
abandoned his daughter-in-law, is now saying, hey, this is the way it needs to happen. We need to burn her at the stake. Took the fire going because it's going to happen today. And they get all everything together and all the crowds, all, you know, the, the mob mentality. Everybody's really excited about it. Yeah, exactly. It's going to smell real good. You know, that, that nice flesh smell burning. And, and uh, everything's coming together. Everybody's joining around. Everybody's rah, rah, rah. And uh, a messenger comes. Tamar sends a messenger over to, uh, over to Judah. And in the process of sending this messenger over to Judah, he's got this, this ring in the hand and, and a rod. And he doesn't know what it's for. And he goes to Judah and says, Hey, uh, Tamar wanted me to send you a message before all this stuff goes down. But um, she said that the, uh, the owner of this ring and the owner of this rod, that, uh, that's the father of my child. And Judah goes, uh, Oh, um, you know, we need to uh, put the, pour some water on that fire. We need to, we need to talk a little bit here. We need to, to figure everything out. You know, a real big shift in, in the way of thinking. And, it, it, you know, it's just really funny to see how quickly his attitude changed about his self-righteousness and how good he really is, and then everything kind of falls off. Judah's response says, as he goes to Tamar, he says, Tamar, you are more righteous than me because I didn't do what I said I would do. You are a more righteous person than I am. And Tamar gives birth to a little boy. Tamar's little boy's name is Perez. If you go back to the genealogy, go back to the genealogy and you look into that Matthew chapter 1, You'll see it by the name of Perez. Jesus came from an illegitimate child between a father-in-law and a daughter-in-law. Not something that is generally mentioned in the birth story. Not something that's generally mentioned in a genealogy. I'm really thinking that Matthew probably could have skipped over that because it really kind of messes it up. I mean, if you're going for a kingly ancestry... A kingly lineage. You're not going to have an illegitimate child come from it. I mean, Matthew left out plenty of names. Why didn't he leave out that one? And I want to tell you again, in the genealogy, people need to understand that he put in those names because it is the point of the story. It is the point of why Jesus came. It is the point of Christmas. The sinner's that are the sinners. The funny thing is, the story's not over for Judah. Because about 20 years later, after he thinks he'll never see his brother again, there's a famine in the land. And you probably know the story about Joseph. But there's a famine in the land, and they have to go to Egypt, and his, his, uh, his dad says, hey, I want to send you guys go take care of business here, and what we're going to do is, uh, you and Reuben, being the oldest, you guys need to go, and you need to get some grain for us because we have nothing and i hear egypt has a, a smart prime minister and he saved up a bunch of stuff and everything's good so the boys go and they they go and they're standing in front of joseph at the course of the time they didn't know he was joseph because it's been 20 years it's been 20 years and and uh he's dressing like an egyptian he's looking like an egyptian he's talking like an egyptian he's walking like an egyptian so i had to throw it in sorry um christy looked at me last night when i was reading to her she's like mm, i had to do it sorry um completely unrecognizable. And he's there, and he's talking to him, and he starts giving him a hard time. 
He's going back and forth and he's talking to him. And he's taunting him a little bit. And the scripture actually says in the process, as he's giving him a hard time, he'd have to excuse himself from the room because he'd be overwhelmed with compassion and he'd begin to cry. And he felt this, this overwhelming need to, to go and see if his brothers had changed. They had, he had to see if they had changed. And he says, he goes back and he says, you know what, I want you to go and get your younger brother. Don't you guys have a younger brother, like the youngest? And I said, yeah, his name's Benjamin. He goes, I want you to go get Benjamin. Go get Benjamin. So go tell your dad, who's still at home, to let you bring Benjamin, and then we'll talk about this grain thing. So he goes, and he goes home. The boys go home, and they, they, talk, to, they talk to their dad, and he says, you know, um, I, I want you guys to, the prime minister wants us to bring Benjamin. And he says, well, the last time I let you guys take one of my younger sons, it didn't turn out too well. So um, I, I don't think that's, that's what we want to do. And he says, they're not going to give us anything unless we take Benjamin. So he goes, and they get Benjamin, they all come back, and, and everybody bows down because he's the prime minister. So there on his face is Judah. He's on his face, on his knees. And Joseph and all of his brothers, all 12 of them are there, or all 11 of them are there, 12 with Joseph being there. They're all there. And he excuses everybody else out of the room. He says, guys, I just want to let you guys know something. I'm your brother Joseph. I'm your brother Joseph. That same realization that happened when, when Tamar sent the messenger with the ring and the rod, I'm sure came over Judah again. Because he thought he would never see his brother again. And now he's in a position where Joseph has the power of life and death over him. And he probably got to thinking in his own mind, what would I do if my brother had sold me into slavery 20 years ago, had broken my parents' heart, left me for dead, didn't care about me at all, and now... I would have the power over that same brother to do whatever I wanted to do. And however I wanted to do it, and nobody would stop me. What would I do? And Joseph, Joseph looks down and he says, I forgive you. He says, get up. I forgive you. As a matter of fact, not only do I forgive you, but I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to take care of your families, and I'm going to take care of all your stuff, and I'm going to take care of you for generations. I'm going to take care of everything you have. It is the ultimate story of forgiveness. It is the ultimate story of us. It is the ultimate picture of us that we are on our face before God when we don't deserve jack squat. And yet, he gave us everything. He gave us a whole new life. And Joseph had that opportunity to do the same thing. Judah didn't deserve anything but death and torment and all the things that he had done to Joseph, he should have had done tenfold to him. But Joseph instead forgave him. He forgave him. Why didn't God pick Joseph? The scripture says that because of that, because of Joseph, many were saved. The Egyptians were saved. The Pharaoh was saved. All of his brothers and family and the people around were saved because he listened to God. Why wouldn't Jesus come from him and not from Judah? It's a question we battle with our, in ourselves. You know, and God looked down and says, you know, I think instead of going with the perfect example of a Savior, I'm going to go with the liar and thief to bring my son into the world. And the funny thing is, is Matthew highlights it. Because he wants everybody, all of his Jewish readers to know. He wants them to know where Jesus came from. And the reason is, is because... The reason is, 
is because we are Judah. Judah never confessed. He never apologized, at least not mentioned in the scripture. He never went back and became broken. But he was forgiven. He didn't do anything to be forgiven other than accept the forgiveness. And that's us. That is a picture of us before God. We can't do anything to get forgiven, even though that is the thing that we've been taught since we were little, and even if we weren't taught it, it's in our heads and in our minds that we need to do something to be forgiven. But we don't. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are or what you've done or what you are doing, what your past is. All that matters is your present and your future. It doesn't matter what lie, what secret you're holding on to, how you've hurt somebody in the past. It doesn't matter. Because a lot of times we use that and say, I can't come close to God because I have this. I have this barrier. The only barrier that we have between us and God is sin, and God has erased that if we uh, allow him to. If we accept it. It doesn't matter what you've done. But yet we will battle within ourselves. We'll say, well, look what I've done. That doesn't matter either. It's all good and great and all, but it doesn't matter to God. What matters is that his son came and died for us. That's what matters. That is what matters. And I've got to tell you, from the very beginning, God's plan was about what he's done and not about what we've done. And yet we've twisted it and we've tweaked it and we've tried to make it our own and we've tried to change everything. So it looks like something that we have. Our story is Judah's story. And I think that's the reason why. I think that's the reason why God chose him. I don't know what you're holding on to today. I don't know where you're at in, in your relationship with God. Maybe you feel like you've done just too much to be close to him. That's a lie. It's a lie that you tell yourself, and it's a lie that Satan's trying to get you to believe. Because you haven't done too much to be forgiven by Christ, to be forgiven by God. Or maybe you're on the other side, and you say, I've gone to church every day, every Sunday of my entire life. If I miss one, if I go on vacation, we just go to church at the place where we're at. Because I have to go to church, because I have to check that off my checklist, because I'm, I'm a doer, and I'm going to do this in my own self-righteousness. Well, that's a lie, too. Because it doesn't matter what we do, because we're sinners. All that matters is that what Christ has done. It is God's way of telling us it's all about Christ. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. We have access to Him through Christ, not through our own goodness. And we don't get blocked by our access because of we've done too much. Christ died for everyone. And we talked about it last week. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish not that the good people would believe in him not just the Americans not just the Republicans not just anything like that you fill in the blank it's the world the worst sinner possible to the person who thinks they're the best God died for them 
He sent his son to die for them. I don't know where you're at in your relationship with him, but I have a feeling God brought you here for a reason this morning to deal with maybe some of the issues that you have. Maybe it's the self-righteous part of it all, or maybe it's the fact that you just don't feel like you're good enough to be close to God. I don't know where you're at, but I pray that you open your heart and open your mind to what he has to say to you. I pray that you change your outlook from anything about doing to what God has already done. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much for sending your son. And we think back to the beginning and we read in the book of Genesis and we see all the things that you did through each individual as we continue to go through each step of this genealogy. We see the people that you've used and it wasn't it wasn't a plan of self-righteousness. It wasn't a plan of what we could do to earn your favor, but instead it was your grace and mercy was evident even in the book of Genesis. Lord, I pray you open our hearts and minds to that this morning because it's something we can get so wrapped up in on what we do and what we deserve because we've done it or the opposite of what we've done and what we don't deserve because we've done it. Change our hearts and change our minds from that thinking to understand that it is your grace and your mercy that saves us. Pray it in your name. Amen.